music, 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 technology, music, technology, music, music, technology, teacher, 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 technology, teacher, 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 network, net, net, teacher, network, net, net, teacher, network, network. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mutech Teacher Talk Podcast. This podcast is a part of MutechTeacherNet.com, a website dedicated to advocating, supporting, and inspiring creativity in teachers and students through music technology. I am your host and founder of New Tech Teacher Net, Heath Jones. I teach music technology courses at McConnell Middle School in Gwinnett County, Georgia. In this episode, I will continue my conversation with Dr. Adam Patrick Bell. He's an assistant professor of music education in the School of Creative and Performing Arts at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. His current courses include Music and Popular Culture, Popular Music Pedagogy, and Introduction to Music Technology. His primary areas of research are do-it-yourself music making and learning in home studio recording, music software and instruments design impact on learning, and music technology's impact on disabilities in music. In addition to numerous articles written for professional and educational journals, he has shared his research and presented professional learning sessions around the globe. He also serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Music, Technology, and Education, as well as Visions of Research in Music Education. In this episode, we will continue our discussion about the studio as an instrument for the creation of music in the music tech classroom, as well as his research into different styles of learning in the studio, preparing teachers to teach music technology, as well as the process and purposes of assessment. I hope you enjoyed this episode as we continue the conversation with Dr. Adam Patrick music. Bell. Music. 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 music technology music technology music technology I wanted to ask too even in my class I do have some students that tend to want to work by themselves versus with others but you know I noticed in your book you know the do it aloneers like were Michael and Tyler they were older kind of more experienced producers, performers, while the deal with others, Tara and Jimmy, were a little younger, kind of came from a different place in their musical experience. And I wanted to ask, to what extent do you think experience or confidence plays in whether someone tends to gravitate more towards the do-it-alone versus the do-it-with-us? Yeah, that's a good question. And as you know, I wish for that reason that I could have included more people to sort of delve into some of these issues a little deeper. But... Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. Like Michael's older and Tyler's actually, I think he was like a similar age to Jimmy, but he, you know, he started earlier with a lot of these things like at a young age and, and working with all these things. So I think that, yeah, both Michael and Tyler, because of their experience, they had confidence. Like they really kind of knew what they wanted to do. And what's interesting about Michael is, you know, I profile him a bit learning something new for the first time, like learning Ableton Live. And being being really frustrated with it, which a lot of us can relate to, you know, that program in particular has a steep learning curve. It's great, you know, once you work it out, but 
in the early goings, it can be tricky. And, and Michael's case kind of exemplifies that. And what's interesting about him is, is because of all his experience, he has these expectations for how things are supposed to work. And there, there's a, you know, a kind of double-edged sword aspect to that of all these music technologies we use because in, in one sense, well, it's good that someone like Michael is being challenged to approach things differently because it's going to kind of stretch his sense of creativity but on the other hand, it's, it's frustrating because you just want to like do something and why doesn't work the way it's always worked? And, you know, this is not just within the realm of music technologies, like any technologies, right? We kind of have expectations and things don't work the way they're supposed to. It can be, it can be a, a barrier. So to kind of get back more to your question about uh, experience and confidence, I think Tara and Jimmy what was interesting about them is that they had more preconceived ideas of what they wanted to do uh, compared to the other two. And I thought that was an interesting coincidence that they are the ones who are, are using the do it with others approach. So like they know what they want to do. They want to make like an album and they want it to sound a certain way. And Tara is probably the best example because she's recording her parts separately. She's recording piano and then she's recording voice. And then her com chief complaint is like, well, does it sound like I'm playing piano and singing? And that's the joke. It's like, well, you're not. So you're going to hire someone to make it sound that way. And so because she doesn't have the, the ability to do that or the, the technological skills to do that, she has to like hire someone else out to like realize her creative vision. And if you contrast that with, say, Michael or Tyler, it seems like they're playing. Like they, they want to do stuff. They have these creative projects. And and they both have other gigs on the side and whatnot. So it seems like for them, it's like this special time to themselves. So people talk about in our current culture, like me time. And I think for them, it's very much me time. And it's sort of the end product seems less consequential for them. Like it doesn't seem like they have much riding on it. And so for that reason, they're just kind of happy to do what they're doing. And again, you have this coincidence where how come it's those people that have all the experience and all the confidence that they're choosing that way? So it would be a fun kind of theory to like look at further, and, and maybe I will. But when you do in-depth case studies, you just only have so many pages before you're going to bore people. It's already kind of dry material to start with when you're talking about processes. Like the joke I always say is like, well, if you enjoy watching paint dry, like this is the research for you because everything moves so slow and it's little things. You're watching mouse movements. So, you know, it's not exciting stuff, but the outcomes of this very much is you know so you can watch someone click a mouse on their digital audio workstation for like eight hours and it might not seem like much but then you hear the end result and it's like wow you did that so that you know that, and that's why there's such a focus on the book on a process it's so important it may not seem exciting but it's it's so critical yeah i know you talk in the book about for a large chunk of the history of Recording, if you wanted to go into recording a production, you know, the way you did it was you got to try to find a job sweeping the floors in a yeah. studio somewhere, you know, looking over the shoulders and, and, and learning by watching until you got an opportunity to maybe actually get your hands on, on, on the knob, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you kind of contrast that with today where a lot of students just go to YouTube or, mm -hmm. you know, so much of the software comes with tutorials that yeah. you, you know, learn how to do these things and that, you know, that way of learning, you know, these processes of recording this stuff is, is a different form of learning this craft of recording than the apprenticeship model. But, you know, it seems to me that these kind of technologies, whether it's, you know, going to YouTube or using these tutorials, really are still informal learning instead of, you know, having to get the, the job sweeping the floors and having to go find a studio somewhere. I mean, if you're 
you know, from a rural community or someplace, maybe there's not anything even close. But it seems like that, you know, YouTube has kind of allowed people to bring that studio to them. So, you know, my question is, are we in a modern apprenticeship system, but now YouTube is our teacher? Or how important is it, do you think, that older style in the studio learning versus learning from tutorials and YouTube and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. I think it's an excellent question to be asking ourselves. So if we think about the apprenticeship model in the analog era, which I discuss, I think a key difference, and it's not necessarily a difference that needs to exist, but I think it is one that's mostly still there, is interaction. So in the apprenticeship model, you have essentially a curated process because you're working with experts and you watch them and you interact with them. I mean, it depends, of course, on the person, but I would say by and large, the teaching was not formal. I think like the most formal teaching I've learned about in that system is like Abbey Road, where it was more regimented. Guys wore white lab coats. You know, it was more regimented system. And it was, to me, it seemed to have the most formal teaching, and that's not saying much because a lot of it was very much just like apprenticeship style. Hey, watch me, hang out. You know, in Britain, they had tea boys, right? Their job is to bring tea to engineers. And, and that's how they learn. And eventually, someone's sick one day, and you get the call. It's like, all right, you, you get the hot seat, and you're up. And we live in a, in a time right now when a lot of those engineers are writing books <laughs> about themselves within the experiences. So that's how we know this. So they've written a lot about that. And their focus isn't music education. Their focus isn't teaching and learning. They just want to tell their stories. But if, if you read... You know, you'll find lots of evidence of them talking about how they learned their craft. And so like any kind of apprenticeship model, the key component is you have this sort of master mentor model and that person as the mentor, it's their judgment when you're ready to go. And so it's a, it's a model that I doubt we'll see the same, but it'll be interesting to see if it carries over in YouTube. We hear, for example, about people getting music lessons on YouTube or sorry, not on YouTube, but on Skype, right? And so there we have the same kind of thinking where we have a master mentor person and there's an interaction there and they're giving feedback. So that might be more in line. What's interesting about like YouTube tutorials and tutorials that come with uh, software or like if it's on lynda.com, all these things is that it can be tricky as a newcomer to know whether or not the information is of good quality. <laughs> So that's one of the challenges. So maybe if the software company endorses it, then you can rest easy. But if you go on YouTube, like there's lots of people out there putting up tutorials and the quality varies. Like some are excellent and, and some are not. And that's sort of the tricky thing for the newcomer. If you're experienced, then you can kind of like wade through these things and help curate these videos for your students. But if you're new, it's really challenging. Also, that model is just posting information. So there's not necessarily an interaction. There could be in the comments. There could be follow-up videos and things like that. So I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying it tends to be essentially posting of information. What the person does with it, we don't necessarily know. And also, I think it's important to point out in thinking about teaching and learning that just because information is given, we don't know how it's dealt with. And so much of the work that we do, you know, if we work in, in studios and labs, things like that, it's very interactive. And the, some of the key learning moments aren't necessarily these big epiphanies, but like little things. And that's more in line with the apprenticeship model. And I wonder 
how that shakes out and how it will kind of shake out on YouTube and things like that. So I, at the end of the day, I would say like we could have an apprenticeship type model working on YouTube or similar sites, but a lot of what I see isn't quite that. So I do think that they're different. The other question that's important to ask is like, well, is one better than the other? And that's where things get more controversial. And again, like something I talk a lot about in the book is trial and error learning. There's really something to be said for not knowing what you're doing. There's ample evidence of people like essentially playing around with stuff, making mistakes and coming up with something wonderfully creative. So it's almost like an anti-learning model. I mean, it's not. These people are always focused on doing something. They have aims, they have goals, so they're very motivated, but they're not, they're not working under a master mentor. They're not going to YouTube. They're just like playing around. And so there's something to be said for that. And I always try to create space for that. And that's probably the trickiest thing to do in school because that's a real world practice but how you as a teacher like incorporate that into a classroom practice that's really challenging but i think it's incredibly important for me the entire book builds up to chapter eight and i love this chapter you know i literally found myself you know reading the chapter going yes yes i agree But nevertheless, you know, on subsequent readings and when I think about, you know, actually the application of some of these things, I begin to find myself going, yes, but. Right. So uh, these next few questions, I'm going to I'm calling my calling them my yes, but questions. What I'd like to do is just to read a quote from the book that I absolutely agree with, but then follow that up with my yes, but question. So here's the first one. So you write. Music educators ought to be less concerned about a model of learning that can be prescribed and instead focus on helping learners to develop their own pedagogies. Yes, but how do music education training programs, colleges and universities like where you teach, uh, how do you prepare prospective music educators how to teach a music technology course, especially if they don't have a background in recording or necessarily using a lot of music technology? Yeah, and there's a lot of variables there in that question, which is fair enough. Um, I'll start with like this, Tom Rogalski had this term, methodology, right? The idea, like, we see it in elementary music, like, oh, I'm an ORF person or a Kodai person, right? And so that's kind of what I'm getting at with Lucy Green's model of informal learning. And I don't think she actually intended uh, for people to have this prescriptive model, but I think her research has been interpreted that way, like, oh, we follow these five steps and that's informal pedagogy. And so that's what I'm trying to point out is, well, I don't think we actually really need that because that's not, for, if we're concerned about authenticity, like that's not in keeping with real world practice at all. The reality is very messy and you know, we, we need to embrace that messiness. So that's like the first thing I would say, if that makes sense. And then in talking about teacher training, this is a really interesting question. And I think that you've outlined two populations in a way, and they might not need to be different. So the first thing I'll say that's probably the most difficult for people to wrap their heads around if you come from a more traditional music training is that maybe we need to consider who teaches music in the first place. So, you know, if you're an orchestral musician and you think that's what the bar should be to get into a music education program, I understand. But then we get into some philosophical issues about our values of music. So are we saying then that one person's musical practices aren't valuable, but yours are better or superior? These are really challenging questions for people. They're actually not for me because I've kind of dealt with this already. But I'm of the opinion that if we're really serious about a democratic educational system, 
then we need to value everyone's music. A lot of this has to do with culture, and so valuing someone else's cultures and really making an honest effort to engage with musics that maybe are not familiar to you. And so in underlying, you know, sort of under that statement, then we can think about popular music, in my case, which is a lot of what I do, but more broadly, how music technologies are used in music making and say like, hey, this person is really good at this. Like they're very musical. If they want to be a music teacher, might we consider letting them go into a teacher training program? So that's a tough question for people to answer. I'm, I'm saying the answer is yes. I'm not saying that this person, so, so say they're a DJ and they're really good at that and they would teach that, but we shouldn't discount that person as also not being able to learn other things. And so it goes both ways, right? So if you are coming from the other background where it's like, hey, I just play trombone. I'm really good at trombone. I love band. I want to be a band teacher. Now I need to teach music technology because you know the administration says that's something we should do. What do I do? I know I know nothing. And so I'm using the same spirit to say, hey, you know what? I respect your musicianship and I'm so thrilled that you're interested in this other kind of way of making music and you can learn too. So it's of this mentality of like, we can learn it, we can do it. I think it is challenging in the training system of colleges and universities to, to sort of treat both these populations. I don't think it's actually two distinct populations. It, I've learned from working with students on the ground floor that there's like so much blurring. Like we have all these skills and experiences. So I think in the courses that we teach, going back to the beginning of our conversation and creating projects where a large range of people's musical interests can be accommodated, I think goes a long way. And so I think you, everyone can still learn the same skills. We're always going to have people that are better at some things than others. And we just have to live with that. But I think a good teacher, and I know it sounds corny, but a good teacher is gonna be really invested in getting better. And that's what really excites me about people such as yourself that I keep meeting who are jumping into music technology is that people are super motivated. They are learning a lot and they're going to conferences, going to workshops, reading books and articles, like it's incredible. And so to me, that's really exciting. And so I think that Although maybe our systems aren't great, we have all these people that are like figuring out how to be great beside them, you know? So for people such as myself working in college and universities, yeah, we have a lot of work to do to make the, the training systems better. But the good news is we're seeing lots of good examples uh, around the country, uh, in my country as well, people doing like really exciting stuff. And at the end of the day, we come back to like serving the students, right? And my hope is to see as many students as possible from like different musical interests just engaging and making music. And I tell people all the time, listen, I, I am the example. If I can do this, anyone yeah. can, you know. So Great. you also write your book, for the music educator, it's critical to recognize what is of utmost importance is to create context in which tacit learning can occur. Yes, but mm -hmm. many teachers, particularly I know in America, are now being evaluated on the effectiveness of their teaching by generating data from assessments, more specifically about assessing students. How can teachers assess and assign a grade or evaluate these projects and document that learning has taken place to administrators and parents in this tacit learning environment, as you describe it? Yeah. Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's really tricky. So again, 
we sort of have two two real worlds here that butt up against each other because in the real world of, of music production, as I outlined in the book, so much of the learning is tacit. If you talk to these people about how they learn what they learned, they're they have nothing to say. They just it's it's difficult. However, there's evidence of the learning, and that's probably the key part for the teacher to seize upon is, hey, look what I made. And so then we need the teacher to really recognize that, right? And say, oh, these are all the things you're doing. So I have like some practical workarounds I, I do with projects that I give for people that are really concerned about like a rubric or a checklist or whatever. In the language of assessment, we're talking about a summative assessment, this kind of final project. And so I'll do certain things with my students say like, you have to use this, you have to use this you'll demonstrate it. So I can actually go through a curriculum document and match it up and say they're doing all these skills. But to be perfectly honest with you, I'm less concerned about that and more concerned with the creative aspect. That might not reflect on a report card so much, but that's okay. It actually works in favor uh, of the students typically because you usually if we do peer assessment, self-assessment, students can say like, I'm proud of it, but I wish I did this better. I wish I had more time uh, and we're working on this or their peer will say like, yeah, that's pretty good. But like, maybe we should have done this or this or this. And I say, look, you guys are harder than yourselves than I am. Here's all the things you learned. And and it's important to get students reflecting on their own learning as well and, and recognizing all these things they learned. So I think it's it's a bit of a workaround, but I think you can structure things into a project that you're looking for that is evidence of the tacit learning. So the students might not ever be able to say, oh, this is what I'm doing with this piece of equipment or whatnot but they can show it. And I think that's like the more important part because that's your evidence. That's what you can show to the parents, colleagues, whoever, you know, needs. So it's like, hey, we can talk about all the things. I can break it down as a teacher. And this is, again, going back to teacher training, why it's important for them to be able to recognize these things. So, you know, are they doing a good job mixing? Well, what's mixing? That's a big thing. Um, you know, there's lots of things that break down from that, but it's up to the sort of the teacher to, to figure that out. And I'll come back to one last point, which is we should really work with real world exemplars. So if the goal is to make a country song, well, then we should listen to those country songs that the student thinks should serve as exemplars and, and use them as guides, as real world exemplars. Yeah, that was, we do such a terrific job of indoctrinating students into what is learning. And I found with my own students that they are really hesitant to turn something in if they don't think it's finished or, yeah. you know, they don't have it quite right. And, uh, you know, and I tell them, I said, you know, that's, Nothing really works that way. I'm like, you know, how many of you, you all have like a phone, a cell phone in your pocket, right? You know, how many times have uh, you gotten an update on an app or an update, a software update? When it comes to technology and computers, when they push stuff out, they know it's not finished. They know there's going to be problems. But, but that's why we get updates. They're not afraid to, you know, put something out there to use it and then correct it later. So, you know, I tell them it's part of the process of, of music that you're going to do a lot of things wrong before you get to what you think is right. And the discovery of those wrong things is every bit as important as, you know, if you don't do that, you never get to what it is you're looking for. And a lot of times I tell them, in a lot of ways, it's never finished, you know, when you're working right. on a, a song or, or whatever. Like I said, the, the schools do a great job of, they're trained to think that the secret to success in school is to get the right answer as quickly as possible and avoid wrong answers at all costs. 
Yeah. And, and I experienced the same thing. And I, you know, I respect, you know, rubrics have a function and they're helpful, but we talk about creative work. There's no rubrics in the real world. And that's a hard lesson for a lot of students to learn. What's that? If I just do this, this, and this, then will you have a song you're proud of? Maybe, maybe not. You know, a lot of times students will ask me, you know, come, you know, come listen to what I've done. Um, yeah. And I'll tell them, I said, you know, when I'm listening to something you've created, assessment is not about preference. It's not about whether I like it right. or not stylistically. As far as the preference piece goes, what's most important to me and I hope to you is that you like what you've created. Um, yeah. You know, I'm going to give you this is if I was doing this, this is maybe how I would do it or maybe try this. But ultimately, it's your decision, you know, yeah. what you're going to do. Yeah, so, I think that's really important. And something I often say to my students in somewhat of a joking way, but it's like, do you really want the opinion of a guy who's 20 years older than you on popular music? <laughs> you know, you might want to think about that. So let's focus on some other aspects. <laughs> This ends the second part of my conversation with Dr. Adam Patrick Bell. We will wrap up our conversation in part three of this series in the next episode of Mu Tech Teacher Talk. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Bell and his work, I would encourage you to visit his website at www.adampatrickbell.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about it. In addition to the podcast and www.mutechteachernet.com website, I also have a blog at www.mutechteachernetblog.com and the Mutech Teachernet channel on YouTube that you can subscribe to. And if that isn't enough, you can also stay in touch with us on Facebook at Mutech Teachernet or on Twitter at Twitter handle at Mutech Teachnet. Please like and share, retweet, and always feel free to leave some comments and let us know how we are doing or what you would like to learn more about. Advocate, support, inspire, create. Network. The Music Technology, Technology Teacher, Teacher Network. Music Technology 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 Teacher Network.